Okay, Hi, I'm Johnny. Welcome to this episode of the Yonsei Podcast, brought to you by Nikkei Rising and Tadaima, a virtual community pilgrimage. Hi, I'm Yoko. I'm going to be a, your other host for today. And um, today we're going to be talking about the actual places where our grandparents and great grandparents were imprisoned and explore our history through the perspective of young Nikkei. Today, uh, we have two guests. Our first guest is Lauren Matsumoto. She is a Yonsei and a graduate of UC San Diego, where she was involved in the Nikkei Student Union and is active in the Japanese American Citizen League. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Our second guest is Jason Fuji. He is a Yonsei and graduate of Cal State Long Beach, currently pursuing a career in teaching, and he is a member of the Mansonar Pilgrimage Committee. Thank you so much for being here, Jason. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Now that we got the intro- the introductions out of the way, um, let's. Do you guys want to just like go over some background info about our families and like which camp they're all from? I can start. Um, I have family that was in uh, Minidoka, Tuli Lake, Amachi, McNeil Island Penitentiary, and uh, Department of Justice camp in Santa Fe. Uh, Yoko, do you want to go next? Oh, um, so my family was all in Southern California before the war, even though I was born and raised in Seattle. So um, my grandma's side of the family was sent to Rower in Arkansas, and my grandpa's side of the family was sent to Gila River in Arizona. Um, So it's my dad's side of the family that were unjustifiably incarcerated. So my grandpa and his family um, actually was also sent to Tule Lake, and then my grandma and her family were sent to Gila River. Um, For me, my mother's side, actually, her parents were in Japan during the time. Um, and then my father's side, they're the ones that were incarcerated. My grandmother and her family was at Chile Lake. And my grandfather was at Amachi with his family. So um, I think that a cool jumping off point to talking about our relationship with our family stories. And just because we're descendants, we didn't actually experience this, but it affected us in really deep ways. And um, our relationship to it, I think, is something we really want to explore in this episode. Um, I wanted to ask people if they could share a little bit about how they first learned about their family experience um, and how they learned this history as something that not only had happened in our country, but had happened to those closest to them. Um, So I can go first. I first heard or I first learned about this history in relation to my family. Um, my mom through a book called flowers for Mariko. Um, and my mom actually, um, she really wanted to be intentional about teaching us about our family's history in a way that was empowering and in a way that made us proud of our grandparents and didn't involve any shame. And so she sat us down and read this picture book to us and kind of explained to us um, that this is something that happened to our grandma, our grandmother and our grandfather. Um, in the book, it's a young girl who goes to camp. Um, and then she had our grandparents read the book to us and answer any questions we had. And I think it started a really um, interesting dialogue between us. And my grandparents has all, have always been super open with me. I know I'm super lucky in that sense. 
Um, does anyone else have any stories to share about how you first learned about your family's experiences? I feel like for myself, I just always, I can't remember like exactly when I first found out, you know, mm-hmm. your story sounds so welcoming and nice of, of an introduction. I just know at a young age, definitely in elementary school, um, my dad told me, you know, that my grandparents were put into a camp. Um, and then I think from just there, what I can remember is whenever I was given the opportunity to do a research project, I always wanted to talk about camp because it was oh my just God, same. Ne- something never talked about, right? Literally same. I did um, so many <laughs> projects about this stuff. I mean, I can distinctly remember, like, I did at least one research project in elementary school, another in middle school, um, and definitely one in high school. Um, But it was in actually high school that I got a lot more involved in understanding what, you know, the impacts were and what that meant. And actually, in high school is when I first found out about, like, the reparations and the Civil Liberties Act. Um, So it was a lot. I think for me, it was more of a growing older and as I grow older um, learning more about what really happened and that impacted how I viewed myself as well as how I viewed the world. So I think my story is somewhat similar to Lawrence as far as I found out about it in elementary school. I'm not quite sure when but um, but it was more that my grandparents on my father's side were incarcerated um and then in middle school i actually did a research paper about it um unfortunately i didn't have the opportunity or i didn't really take this opportunity to interview them because they lived up in norcal and stockton area and Um, as a middle school student i wanted to know more but also just wanted to kind of get the assignment done and i was kind of torn between that (laughs) (laughs) um i was able to interview docents at janum so that was nice Mm. Um, and that gave me more of that uh, realization about how important this was. And then mm. same thing in high school, I did uh, more research papers about it and just kind of read up about certain things. I was just going to say, like, jumping off of, like, what Jason said, I think growing up, it's like talking about anything related to concentration camp or incarceration. It's too serious of a topic. So I wasn't able to fully explore what I wanted to learn and understand until hitting college because we have more of that freedom. But Mm. for me, finding Nicholas Union was also finding a community that was super supportive and could help like take me in the right direction of like, these are people that you can reach out to. Here's like resources that you can utilize. Um, Actually having classes centered around our own history because I think why we're all attracted to talking about our histories because we're not seeing ourselves being reflected in the textbook and the textbooks we're reading majority um, successes within America. And it's pretty white. If you think about it, we're not Mm -hmm. talking about Asian Americans, black or indigenous people and their history. We're just talking about white success. And so we want to be seen as well. And for us to be seen as we have to take, the time and space to not only educate ourselves, but educate others. Mm. It's really cool to hear that you guys like took early opportunities to, to like learn about your history, because I know like for me, it took me a while to get here. 
Um, like we heard about camp growing up for me, but it took me like up to like, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Um, it was like when my, uh, my sister started attending, uh, pilgrimages and, um, she was able to like convince my grandpa who like up till that point, like never talked about anything, never really discussed anything. Like we didn't really hear much about, uh, internment camps from him, but she managed to convince him to actually attend one of these pilgrimages, the Minidoka pilgrimage. And like after that, he just kind of like opened up a little bit more and he was like more open because of that environment, you know? And yeah, like the, the experiences that were passed down from him, from my grandparents are limited, but I'm like really lucky that, that we got to have like those stories passed down. Um, I think talking about pilgrimages, it's one of the main ways that our generation is able to connect to this history. So I was wondering if anyone wanted to share any experiences they have visiting um, these sites of incarceration um, and how that impacted the way that they see their own family's history and how that might have moved them in any way. Um, I go first on this one. So for me, my first regular pilgrimage or a pilgrimage that I went to was in 2010. So we went out there and I, it was really something else to go for that first time. Um, and even though I didn't have any family incarcerated there, it just, it kind of took my breath away as far as mm. how vast it was, how far the drive was. So basically how in the middle of nowhere, I still remember that I was at one of the blocks, probably either block 14 or the mess hall area. And I was just kind of looking out and I started crying just because I realized that, you know, what you read in the books and what you saw, like maybe at Janum and whatnot, that it's nothing compared to what you see there. Mm. And it really hits you once you're standing there. Yeah. So for me, um, I also don't have family in Manzanar, but it's one of the closer sites. So I'm from San Diego. And so the first time I went was in high school. Um, and I went with my dad. Um, I think it was, you know, a really long and tedious drive going all the way up to San Diego from San Diego to Manzanar and actually back to San Diego the same day. But, you know, taking that time, and realizing how far out it is. And I think when I went, um, there was only like the visitor center. And so it's just, you see a lot of emptiness. Um, and I didn't return back to Manzanar until college again. And with NSU for three years, I went on the pilgrimage with them. And, you know, I think what's amazing is slowly seeing um things grow as more exhibits are being put up um, and gardens are being unearthed. And, you know, it's becoming, you slowly seeing what camp used to look like and it becomes more real. Like people actually lived here and had to live here for, you know, a couple years of their life and just didn't know when they were going to come out. Yeah, no, like I, I had the privilege of um, volunteering for the Monodoka pilgrimage. Um, and like you said, there's not much there. There's, there's like a couple of things there, like a couple of recreated, mm -hmm. um, like barracks. There's like the, the refrigerator cave thing. <laughs> uh, and they just opened a, a visitor center, but like the first time I was there, there was pretty much not really much that you could see. But then I went to 
uh, I volunteered with uh, Jamp, and I, we filmed down at the Poston Pilgrimage uh, down in Arizona. And there's like so much more there. And like I found out that a lot of the buildings uh, from the remains of the camp they were retrofitted to be uh, a school down there, which oh. has since like shut down. But like because of that, there's so much more left. There's like foundations and like actual oh, wow. structures. And just standing there and like taking like <laughs> I'm standing there with like a video camera, like recording like shots of like these huge structures at sundown to like realize like holy crap, like people lived here for like four years uh, and I'm related to a lot of these people. It's crazy. Yeah. I yeah. think the I think the pilgrimage experience is is one that is so important to the younger generations. And yeah, I think that another thing about pilgrimages, I just think that the people, like it's something that we all do because we care so much, you know? And I think that um, the people who end up being involved in this stuff are people who have like really intense emotional connection to it. And it's just, I don't know. It's so rewarding to be a part of, I don't know if you guys feel the same. It's like, it's been so important oh, yeah, for, sure. for me. Yeah, I definitely think it's something very rewarding to be a part of. I actually met Jason um, through Manzanar at Dusk and helping organize that when I was at NSU. Um, and I think it's that sense of community um, and being able to come together every year at this time to meet and have this discussion um, and this discussion is fairly important as like we progress with this political climate of how our history is still very relevant to what is happening to other communities and recognizing that we've seen it happen before and we can't let it happen again. So how can we utilize our voice and this community that we built to help others as well? Mm. Yeah, to add on, it, it's, I mean, I'm happy that the pilgrimage is still going on and it's a great place for people to meet. And it's amazing how many people you could talk to and get to know quickly over mm -hmm. one common factor, one common event like this pilgrimage. And just the fact that you see more, especially at the Manzanar pilgrimage, that it's extremely diverse. It's not just JAs. It's not just Japanese people. You see Muslims, you see his, uh, Latinx people, you see a lot of different people because mm. we realize that this history that happened to us, unfortunately, is happening to other people. And it's sad that it's happening, but I'm happy that we get a chance that everyone gets to show that we are one big community together. And I think it's also a way for some people to just let out some of that frustration that they might be feeling too. And knowing that people around them will support them. And like also recognizing that this is not only with the Manzanar community and former incarcerees, but as well as working with the National Park Rangers, um, because they are there as resources. And like, you know, while they're at Manzanar, they're the ones unearthing these gardens. So the ones that, like, for example, Rose, she goes out and actually records as many stories as she can. Um, but what you said about 
uh, how park rangers and what they contribute and how they they like engage with like camp survivors reminded me a lot of uh, the time that my my grandpa my grandpa George Nakagawa during his time at the the pilgrimage he like met this park ranger and she started talking to him and she started asking about oh what did you do here while you're at camp and he talks about how he was a baseball player and <laughs> like my grandpa he's like you don't understand he's like the quietest guy he's like the most soft-spoken stoic dude and he just like breaks out into like this dynamic story about this one baseball game where he like hit this like huge home run and he was giving us like the play-by-play and I just saw him light <laughs> up to like this this park ranger and my my sister actually got it all on video um oh, and cool. oh wow yeah he was like can you find out how big how big that baseball that uh ano that uh, baseball diamond was because I want to know how far I hit that ball and <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's crazy how important uh the work that like park rangers and historians of all sorts do yeah. at these places so yeah that's, that's what it reminded me of it's cool i mean i think it's also what's interesting is like you telling that story it also just humanizes what happens um so for me a lot of what i know is only through my grandpa because my grandma passed away a little bit after I was born. So a lot of what I heard was his personal experience. Um, and actually looking back, a lot of what he said was like pretty short, pretty concise. Like I'll ask him a question and he'll Same. just say, you know, like, like, uh, like grandpa, like, what do you think of camps? And he was just saying like, it was horrible. We were like, you know, herded in like cattle and like, that was it. Um, but then you hear little things of, you know, what was the food like? And I think one of the weird, interesting things I found out uh, was the story about how he actually doesn't like curry or like how he didn't like curry anymore because of camp, because the food that they had there was so bad and they had like lamb curry or something. And so since then it turned him off from eating curry. Um, so like even hearing like little stories like that, um, you know, makes you think about the good and the bad that happened in there and how they had to deal and like live with all of that. That reminds me so much of like, I feel like when I, the more I talk to my grandparents about their experience, it's like the more you kind of understand them. Like there's all these little things. Like my grandma mm -hmm. had this thing about plaid and like this, my mom was said that one time she was trying to buy this like plaid jumper. And my grandma was like, no, that's the most uh, horrible thing ever. And we found out that like, <laughs> that like, yeah, we found out that, um, they had those mail order Sears catalogs and like, oh, they pretty yeah. much got oh. the dregs of the stuff and whatever they had excess of, they would send over. And apparently one year, all the girls had to wear this horrible plaid jumper. And it's just like, I think you're so right about those like little stories that might seem insignificant to someone who's outside of it but like it, it to learn that it meant so much to me because i was like oh like i get it now you know okay so uh the things i know about my family uh the first thing for my grandfather he was the oldest of the family i think he had three younger siblings and the hardest thing for him is that he went in he was about 21 22 
And from what I found out is that my great grandfather, he just kind of gave up on life when he got into camp. And I kind of asked why. And I guess the reason was because he was a businessman. He had a business. He was pretty successful. <clears throat> and then the Great Depression hit. So he lost his business. Mm. And then he was able to start another one up again. And then he was incarcerated. So, you know, for him, if you kind of think about it, it's like, why should I even try anymore? Because he lost two businesses, two great successes, not because of him, but because of just outside events that he had no control over. So my grandfather really had to take over as the head of the household. And I think that's kind of why he himself was very quiet. And when I ask him about camp, he's just, it's maybe one word answers when I did ask him. Mm-hmm. And he usually would divert it to just other stories. Um, so I really felt for him because I don't see how when I was 21, 22, how I could even get close to doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> for my grandma, she was a little bit different. She's the exact opposite as my grandfather. She's extremely outgoing. She could talk to anybody and make friends with anybody, <laughs> no matter who they are. <laughs> And uh, she was the youngest too. So, and she was like 15. So she kind of remembers it being a little bit more fun. She remember, I remember hearing that she remember talking about the dances and other things like that. So it's just amazing how six years could difference could really change your perspective of camp. Yeah. And I think the craziest story I have about my grandmother is something that I found out through Rose, one of the rangers at Manzanar. On the first Katadi trip is that she told me that she, if I knew that she had siblings that renounced their citizenship at Tule Lake, and I think they went back to Japan. And I was like, no, I have no clue. Oh. And yeah, and it was shocking to me because I was kind of speechless because I didn't find this out through my grandma or really through my family, but through literally a person I met once before and then got to know more at katadi and she was able to find out more of my family history than i knew and it was i don't know i didn't i was at a loss for words yeah i have long lost relatives that probably don't know i exist and i don't know where they're at so it's hard because that whole idea of family separation really all of a sudden struck home to me as far as Mm -hmm. wow there are people i have no clue who they are and it kind of seems like part of my family didn't really try to get to know them too well beyond kind of maybe a random phone call every once in a while mm-hmm. or anything like that. And yeah, that was probably the most shocking thing that has ever happened to me as far as just learning about my own history. Mm-hmm. Wow. So my, my grandparents, the thing that you said about like age differences and stuff and like how different experiences, um, different experiences people have um like that really reminded me of my grandparents my grandma um she was younger than my grandpa actually and i I think it was a much harder experience for her my grandpa would talk about having fun with his friends and stuff like that um but for my grandma her mother actually died in camp um of tuberculosis yeah so she was I think she was around 14 and she had an older sister and then a younger sister. And, um, I think that was a really difficult experience for their whole family. And I definitely think about it a lot because like when I'm at a site, um, I think one of the things that 
things that get to me the most is the idea of someone going in and not being able to leave. Um, and I know Mm -hmm. that it was really devastating for, for, to be in such a horrible place. Like my grandma tells, I I'm actually super lucky because she wrote down her like life story for us. Um, she's amazing. She listens to this podcast. Shout out to grandma. Love you, grandma. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, she's been always so open with us and I'm so appreciative of it. Um, but she, she tells the story that, um, of the funeral that her, of, for her mother and how heartbreaking it was because her younger, I think that they didn't, they couldn't see her for a while before and were just notified that she died because she was quarantined, um, in camp. And, um, apparently it was an open casket. And when her younger sister, Susie saw their, their mother, she apparently wouldn't leave. Like she was just with, was standing in front of the casket and someone had to pull her away. Um, and she was just such a young kid. Um, yeah. So there's such, there's really heart wrenching stories like that, but there's also like the littler, (laughs) more lighthearted stories. My grandma tells a story of how she, um, for some reason she got to leave for like a day. I don't know why it was like part of some like summer camp maybe. And she got to like leave and spend a night with like some white people in the town (laughs) and she like got to like sleep in a bed and she's like it was so amazing like a bed and I'm like oh my god this this child is excited about like I don't know I think that like even the more like seemingly benign stories I think really bring to light what kind of experience this was for a kid to be excited to be able to sleep in a real bed you know um but yeah yeah um I've done talks with like high school students about their incarceration camps and the fortunes of it today. And one thing I always tell them is that if you hear the statement, go back to your country, the fact that it was said back then in the forties and again now, and the fact that it's the same thing, it's just the scariest thing because you have to realize like what has really changed over the time, over the 70 years. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. Not as much as we'd like to think. Yeah. No, but I think, I think it's important to say, and I think because we have, you know, it never personally happened to us. We grew up knowing and learning about such a dark part of our history that deeply impacted our families. And I definitely believe in intergenerational trauma is a thing mm. where what happens, you know, our great grandparents and our grandparents, the way they went about trying to process what happened in camp and how to basically survive and assimilate back into American culture, the way they dealt with that impacted what they bestowed onto our parents and that, you know, having very Anglo-Saxon names, not really Mm. teaching them Japanese and those kinds of sentiments. Um, Then that gets deeply affected to me as like a fourth gen um, so, you know, even like the small things, like, I know I can be sensitive, but when I was younger and people are like, oh, what are you? Well, first of all, that question is kind of uh, rude, yeah, <laughs> but also them, right? it's like, saying like, Hey, uh, I'm half Japanese, half Chinese American and being asked, like, do you speak any of those languages? And like being very deeply embarrassed 
um, not being able to speak either Japanese or Chinese. And being older now, it's just like, hey, there's a reason why. Definitely for my dad's side of the family, they were put into the camp literally for being Japanese. What is the best way for their children to have a better life? Not to be noticed by speaking another language, not really having a very Japanese name. Um, Straight up. And things... Yeah, and so I think it impacts, like, how we identify and how we see the world. Um, So I think for us, like, we knew this happened, and so we have this sense of anger and frustration of this happened to our family. Why are we seeing this happen again and wanting to do something about it? And I think it's very valid. Um, So we may sometimes go, oh, sorry, like, I had to say this frustration or talk about this something deep, but we really shouldn't be apologizing because we're finally expressing a part of our history and letting it being heard and actually doing something about it by first like acknowledging this and then wanting to do something more and make change happen. Um, so I want to thank our guests, Lauren Matsumoto and Jason Fuji, for coming on to our, the Yonsei podcast. Yeah, this this <laughs> this conversation was was great, and I'm really glad that we had you guys on. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thanks for having us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Be sure to join us for next week's episode, A Question of Loyalty, where your Yonsei roundtable will be hosted by Johnny and Matt. I'm super excited about like this next episode because the history that we're going to be going over is super pertinent and uh, related to my own family's history. Where we're going to be able to talk about how our JA ancestors, our grandfathers and great grandfathers, and our great grandparents were questioned whether they were loyal to the United States. We're going to be talking about this impossible question next week. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising, such as our newly released JA Opportunity Fair and DI Yonsei. The Yonsei podcast is made by Hiro Edeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisely with theme music by Michelle Heckert. Thank you for listening. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei.